Touchstone Pictures invites you to tune in again for the most highly acclaimed movie of the year. He's here. Tune in again for Roger Rabbit, Jessica Rabbit, Baby Herman, Benny the Cab, and the most incredible cast of tunes ever to perform together in one motion picture. What's up, Doc? My biscuits are burning. This is hot spot. Tune in again for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The last time I worked with someone with a speech impediment. A Steven Spielberg presentation, a Robert Zemeckis film, rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you, check newspaper for showtimes. Darn you, smile, everyone, because this is Cinemarcade, the podcast about movies, video games, and the sparks that fly when those two worlds collide, much as if the real world were to collide with the Toon world. You see, it all comes together. My name is Steve Guntley, and today we are talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a damn near perfect movie with a title that bafflingly does not have a question mark, and that has always driven me insane. Uh, who are the little tune sidekicks that I have joining me today? Uh, I am who? I am the one who framed Roger Rabbit, which oh. is why it's not a question mark. Oh, I see. It's a, sta- it's a declarative statement. It's a statement, Who yes. framed Roger yep. Rabbit? And yep. you also played on first. Yes. 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 Absolutely. And who else is here? Well, I might be a weasel because I have a tendency <laughs> to laugh really loud. Uh, but uh, it's me, J-Ban. Well, welcome, everybody. We actually have a special guest joining us this week, uh, our very first remote guest. Uh, we, we've got a very complicated, uh, a very janky kind of setup going on here, but hopefully you won't be hearing that on your end. But we are joined today uh, by one of the hosts of the 302010 podcast. You'll also hear him on Talking Terrific Television and 80s In-Depth, uh, a really great podcaster, a good guy. J.R. Rawls is here. Hi, J.R. Thanks. I'm super happy to be here, and soon... Where Toontown once stood will be a string of gas stations, inexpensive motels, restaurants that serve rapidly prepared food, tire stations, automobile dealerships, and wonderful, wonderful billboards reaching as far as the eye can see. My God, it'll be beautiful. Oh, this is a wild fantasy land you're talking about, Jr. This could never happen in so, our America. No, it no couldn't. one's no one's gonna go for that when they can read the red trolley for a nickel. Yes. It's, it's really interesting. I watched the show with my flatmate, who is a LA native. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of like a little pain points. You're like, ouch, ouchie, ouch. <laughs> we used ouch. to. We have the best end, uh, public transportation system in the world. Yeah, I don't think that's. Did uh, you true know uh, Austin used to have a bus system called the Dillo, and no. it was free, and it was the same thing. You basically just hopped on and went to wherever it was going and got off, and then uh, they nixed that one because didn't make enough money well yeah it's a free bus i mean i get yeah but they should have found it they should have funded that a little bit yeah i think it was uh either city of austin or it was ut that put that on okay and they decided not to do it anymore well it's it's gone uh gone in the wind and speaking of gone in the wind a uh, little programming note first of all for those of you who tuned in expecting our willow episode oh. <laughs> i am excited to announce we now have our very first legendary lost episode it was uh, so we, good. <laughs> we had a technical issue in the middle of recording that we did not notice 
So the recording basically had like two minutes of uncorrupted uh, footage on there, and it was just kind of nothing that we could salvage. And so, then we lost an entire voice for the rest of it. <laughs> we did. We did. So uh, we're going to have to revisit our adventure with the Nelwins and their NES uh, spinoff later. But uh, Well, th- if you ever do revisit that, I'm up for coming back because Willow is just like Roger Rabbit, one of those games that I played a ton because I love the movie so much and I was desperate for more of that world and the only thing I could get was an (laughs) NES adaptation of a licensed movie and listeners if you're coming this far you know what that means Yes. (laughs) yes yeah very much and not to not to spoil that episode well in advance but uh that game was better than this game um that game is by a, a lot more of a game <laughs> than this game which we will talk about of course but uh, obviously we're going to want to talk about this movie first because who framed roger rabbit which came out june 30th 1988 directed by robert zemeckis and written by jeffrey price and peter seaman and starring bob hoskins christopher lloyd joanna cassidy stubby k and the voices of charlie fleischer and kathleen turner that movie is goddamn perfect I will go out on that limb. I will say this is a perfect <laughs> film, or at least a movie that seems to be surgically calibrated to go perfectly into Steve's brain. I'm going to say it's close. It's mm-hmm. 99% there. The only thing I would change about this film, because everything else is perfect, there is a huge, giant cut scene where Eddie Valiant goes to Toontown, gets a uh, cartoon pig's head stuck on his head, and... They had to cut it out because it does kind of ruin the reveal of Toontown. It was a good decision to cut it out. But in doing so, they make the transition from him going uh, from leaving the diner to going back to his apartment, meeting Jessica. It's a little clunky. Okay. All right. All right. That's my sole criticism. Everything else in this film, picture perfect, no notes, don't change a frame. Oh, my God. Okay. It is a false cliche that you could not make Blazing Saddles today. That's not yeah. true. You could absolutely make it. You, you cannot make this film today. I'm, I'm going to say that. Here's why. You do not have someone with the clout of Steven Spielberg who can get two giant multinationals and a couple smaller ones mm-hmm. to throw their IPs together. You do not have someone like Robert Zemeckis who is willing to go practical to get digital. Okay? Yes. Because... If you look at the making of this film, it's fascinating. Oh my it is gosh! Almost as good as just watching the movie, as watching the behind-the-scenes like uh, features of of how this movie was pulled together. Because there are so many places where they could have cheated and mm-hmm. made things easier on themselves. It's like, right. okay, maybe this pelican doesn't need to be riding a real bike. He could be riding mm-hmm. a cartoon bike across the scene. Maybe the weasel could be holding a cartoon gun. And they, they look for opportunities to, like, kind of twist those and, and make them harder on themselves. Did y'all grow up on Looney Tunes? Yes. Yes. A little bit. A little Absolutely. bit. I grew oh, yeah, up. Uh, I didn't have Krusty the Clown. I had Ramblin' Rod. And he was a guy who came out early before school wearing a brightly colored jacket. And he'd play uh, cartoons before we all started school. Some public domain, some license for $1.50 from Warner Brothers. Yeah. All right, so you grew up on 
Looney Tunes. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, it was definitely like a, a weird crossover between like Looney Tunes and like IP stylized characters like Darkwing Duck. Oh, sure. Yeah. And Rescue Rangers and that type of thing. And like, but definitely um, my father loved Looney Tunes. So like we always watched a ton of Looney Tunes. Um, and it was just like, um, it was just such a, you know, Chuck Jones, that type of like inspiration of the beautiful beautiful practical art that was so spectacular and then things that are genuinely funny like the opening of this movie has a four minute animated sequence that is genuinely entertaining all right that is an astounding opening cartoon like because that's using the full force of kind of 80s animation 80s hand-drawn animation the at the very cusp before it went digital like i Mm -hmm. think the same year uh, 1988 is when Oliver and Company came out, and that's the first Disney hand-drawn movie that incorporates CGI elements. It's very clunky, it's very mm-hmm. jagged, but you could see it appearing. And then, like, Rescuers Down Under and Aladdin and things like that, they'll all use a lot of CGI. So this is kind of the most cutting-edge hand-drawn animation from before CGI really broke big and kind of integrated into everything. They're using the full force of everything they have for this opening four-minute segment. It's absolutely wild. It's going all over the place, and it's so perfectly timed. What year did this come out again? 88. 88. Yeah. It's my favorite short of all time. If you just accept this as a cartoon short in and of itself, I think it's uh, better than Hair Raising Rabbit, uh, better than uh, any Disney short I can name. I think this. I might, I might still give it to Duckamuck, but other than that, <laughs> this is pretty close. It's, this is pretty. Duckamuck's up there, but yeah, uh, if you look at the quality uh, yeah. of this Duck animation, Duck Dodgers has my heart. I oh, love Duck Dodgers. Duck Dodgers. Oh, okay. We're gonna Justin. After this recording, I'm gonna make you watch Duckamuck. <laughs> this is where because... I show my lack of age, <laughs> and I'm like, what? He's one of them. They're youngins. I grew up rabbit on, season. Uh, Duck season. Rabbit <laughs> season. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I, I just, I always marvel at how, just how much sheer effort and how much, like, joy there seems to be in the making of this movie. It feels like everybody is thrilling to the fact that they're getting away with this and that they're making it work. And you mentioned Chippendale's Rescue Rangers earlier, mm. and that's the one thing mm. I will counter with. The one thing that kind of has come closest to pulling no. off the Roger Rabbit vibe, I think, is the Chippendale movie. More than, I... than Wreck-It Ralph. Objection. Objection. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Look, this film, Roger Rabbit, which was made 34 years before the Chippendale uh, yeah. reboot movie, has such better special effects. Yeah. And it's not even close. It's I mean, true. if you, you uh, the uh, human protagonist, when she's looking in Chip and Dale's eyes, she's staring at their forehead. Okay. Yeah. When Bob Hopkins Hopkins is looking at Roger Rabbit, he's looking at Roger Rabbit. There, there is not like a mismatched eyeline in the entire film. He is. He went the extra mile. We are so I, used I, to I, actors acting against green screen today yes. that we don't realize how amazing his performance was. But he actually started I, hallucinating. I, I, I think I, I think I argue with you. I think we do recognize how amazing it is because it is better. Like his performance against these cartoon creatures, uh, these tunes, is better than anything you saw in Game of Thrones. Um, it's it, better than most of what you see in like the MCU. Yeah, you know? it yeah. is. Like, and, and that's the thing is we have the MCU. We have this new era of actors acting in green screens with things that aren't there. 
and uh, to what you had said, th- th- you still get it messed up sometimes. You're like, they're not looking at each other's eyes. Right. Yeah. Like, this so doesn't match up. Why? This was made 86 to 88. Yeah. Why, you know, 35 plus years ago, were they able to do it better than we're able to and do it today with that's so much more technology, so much more practice? It, it has I to th- come down to, in some cases, effort and think, care. because. Well, and I think the actor put the extra mile in because I and again like they could have gotten they you know the casting on this is legendary about how they went through a list of 20 people before they got to is it Bob Hoskins or Hoskins Hoskins with an S Hoskins Yes. I'm going to get that wrong. Uh, please, I'm just going to call him Bob because I always Bob. mess up his name. Yeah, Bobby, Bobby H. Bobby, Bobby H. Uh, and then Bobby Zemeckis H. is Bobby But Z. Bobby H. brings so much, like, like uh, I, I think Spielberg said that he actually felt like he fit in a film noir, which I thought is really funny because, first yeah. of all, that's not true. Uh, I've watched <laughs> many film noir, and those film noir protagonists are hot as fuck. It's, uh, it's Like, true. oh, my God. Like, anyone who tries to say bogey wasn't attractive is out of their fucking mind. Mind. Uh, but um, yeah, and Robert Mitchum, like, no, no. The, 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 but anyway, I, I get the I get the sentiment is that he had a very he has a very emotive face, yeah, uh, and it, it it works for both comedy and serious acting, and he uh, and he plays so seriously in this role um, at the same like without having a nod and a wink which i think a lot of actors would put would have put that nod and a wink yes i mean so the the original people that they wanted to go with their number one pick do you guys know who the number one pick was harrison bruce ford. willis harrison ford was the number one pick for the role of it's eddie valiant like and i'd I like just, to see that i would i'd like to see it but also he would be so wrong for it he does not have the right energy and i don't think a 1988 Harrison Ford would commit to the bit the same way that uh, Bob Hoskins does. But they also approached, uh, well, uh, Paul Rubens was going to play Roger, RIP. Um, and they went with a different actor for that. But uh, they also talked to uh, Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Robin Williams, Eddie Murphy, Robert Redford, Jack Nicholson, Sylvester Stallone, Ed Harris, and randomly Wallace Shawn. I really want to see a Stallone version i want to see the wallace sean version honestly <laughs> like i'd like tones. to see i'd love to see some of the alternate dooms do you know who was in the running to play judge doom i know the lead uh the the lead person was tim curry yeah he said he and, was too ooh. scary which is yeah him multiple times in his career for like a kind of gentle looking man like he gets cat like he always gets rejected for things because they think he's going to scare children. How do you think that would like scare would feel? children and well, provide a sexual awakening? <laughs> that is what Tim Curry is good for. It's the two um, things. <laughs> I mean, Judge Doom at the very end was pretty damn freaky when yeah. he goes with the red eyes and the daggers out. That scared the crap out of 1988 Jr. Oh, yeah. I think he's even scarier. He's scarier throughout. He's so menacing. Uh, And Christopher Lloyd just brings his A game playing this villain. Will anyone ever not be traumatized by that poor little shoe going Oh, the shoe. He just straight up executes this random innocent shoe. And the LAPD says nothing. You know what? They just watch. The thing that really guts me about that scene every time, I've watched this movie maybe 20, 30 times in my life. I love this movie so much. But the thing that always guts me about that moment. Moment, is that the shoe is kind of nuzzling up against his shoe like a friendly yeah. little cat, and and then he just dunks it, and it's like, oh, horrible, horrible. Literally nothing wrong with what that shoe had done. 
There was no reason other than, is it technically racism? <laughs> I guess. Well, yeah. I don't no. know. Species I mean, it, Judge Doom is a tune. You can be racist against That's your own true. race. That is true. But he's not that. exterminating tunes because he hates tunes. He's exterminating tunes because he's evil. He yeah. is just wanting <laughs> to get more power and wealth for himself, and the tunes are in his way. Now, if you met somebody with the last name of Doom in real life, would you appoint <laughs> them to a judgeship? Like, no. I feel what? like, if, and, and the guy who puts off that energy and has a skull on his cane, like, oh, yeah. I, I so would not put him in charge to, of anything. To approach Judge Doom, we have to first approach this movie as what it is, a film noir with an actually good mystery yes. in it. Judge Doom, even though his name is Judge Doom, we don't know his motivations, and his motivations are as old as the hills and it's fucking capitalism and racism and it's like this capitalist like ideology uh that fuels like chinatown and a bunch of other film noirs um and neo-noirs and it's just like there's act like th they did this in real life they shut down the red car in real life like that's kind of the crazy I, thing that sort of like gives this a little bit of extra weight at the end is like yes they thwart him in his plan but like look around like he he won in the end like it wasn't him but he won so for quite a while i have always said uh the the general plot of roger rabbit was true they actually did those things and everybody looks at me and they're like you're dumb. Cartoons aren't real. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> not anymore. No. Not. <laughs> Did, no. Do you not remember that the actual plot of the movie was that he was trying to destroy public transit to make money off of it? Right. That is what happened That's in exactly real life. The oil companies and their friends did a whole bunch of dumb stuff, and now we don't have public transit. Yeah. Uh, when Austin's an interesting case because it happened somewhat recently. But we had a thing come up where it's like, all right, let's vote for trains. And uh, a couple of different organizations came out of nowhere. They're not from Texas, not from around Texas. And they started blasting anti-train and public transit propaganda hmm. so hard. So it hard. Is, it is probably close to a billion dollars a year is put into anti-public transit propaganda across the United <laughs> States. Wow. It's absurd how hard they tried these things. There was radio ads, print ads, signs up all over town, billboards. It was so infuriating because I was just like, we have one train for a city of about a million. Yeah. <laughs> Could we get two more, please? Just something else. Anything. Well, I, I want to step back a little bit and talk about the production of this movie because I went a little above and beyond this week. Uh, in that I read the novel. Oh! oh. I, I, okay. I, I, There's I, I two versions of the novel. Yes. There's the novel that came out before Roger Rabbit, the movie, and then yes. there's the creator of Roger Rabbit. When, you know, I kind of like the movie better than my own original novel. Exactly. I'm going to reboot it to be more like the movie. So which yeah. version did you read? I read the original. I read the original oh. from 1981. It's called Who Censored Roger Rabbit? And let me tell you, that is a wildly different take. It is an absolutely mm -hmm. strange... Uh, have you read this, Jer? Uh, so back in the 1980s, when this movie came out, I sought out the novelization, the, the original novel of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and somehow in nerd culture, even back then pre-internet, I was told... 
it's nothing like the movie. You're not going to no. like it. And I read like 15 pages mm-hmm. and then I gave up. And <laughs> you're talking to a guy who probably put like 100 hours into the NES game we're going to talk about. So I, <laughs> oh, I couldn't no. I, I could not I had to beat Judge Doom. We'll get to that later. But I was in love with the Roger Rabbit world, but even with that love it couldn't overcome the no- original novel. Yeah. The the novel is deeply strange. All right, it came out in 1981. It's written by a guy named Gary Wolf. And it is an absolutely bizarre take because in that strip, it still has kind of a film noir vibe, but it is set in modern day. Like they make references to things like Kermit the Frog that wouldn't have been around back then. And the car- the tunes are not animated cartoons. They are comic book strip characters. And so basically it's a- this whole industry where comic strips are actually, they're not drawn, they're photographed. And these tunes communicate with actual speech bubbles that materialize above their heads whenever they talk, which is a very visual thing to include in a non-visual media. Like, it's a very visual. Uh, like, Roger is murdered early in the book. Oh. But because tunes in this world can create doppelgangers of themselves that can last independently up to 24 hours or something because they dissolve so after that. Uh, And that's how they get away with doing all their most dangerous stunts. Like Jessica is like deeply unlikable. And she's like a lot of the plot has to do with her, like getting blackmailed for this porno that she did. Like all it's a, it's a really weird book. Like I'm almost to the end of it. Um, But uh, it's, it's a deeply strange and very different if you uh, grew up on the movie. Uh, It's interesting because I read uh, that um, they are originally thinking about making Jessica uh, Rabbit the villain as they were they were also contemplating making a couple of other characters the villain and I'm just like baby Herman yeah yeah, and I'm just like I'm really happy they settled on Judge Doom uh, because I feel like he's proper villainous Uh, but also she's like oh my god something at film noir is always all those bad bad women and I love that line where she's just like "Um, I'm not bad I'm just drawn bad Um, that was in the book yeah yeah. same with uh, baby Herman's line about having a 30 year old lust and a 3 year old dinky Uh, (laughs) that makes it into both versions luckily Uh, deeply strange novel I'm interested to see where it goes because the Jessica that they've created in this novel is really unlikable and like she's she just like it's constantly shit talking Roger and like making him feel really terrible. So I don't know if this is going in the same direction as the movie, but I'll probably wrap this up tonight. Um, I mean, in the movie, doesn't she basically ruin her relationship? Yeah, basically for money. She gets she gets coerced into she doing it. She gets yeah. coerced into doing it. She did it because um, Maroon. Oh, uh, right. Black basically said that Roger wouldn't work anymore unless she got blackmail. That's right. right. Um, Yeah. Which um, I I thought it was a really interesting take to have Patty Cake be the sex surrogate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was like, it was like a five. It was just like, I thought that was a stroke of genius, actually, because it was just like something so innocent and yet it's like so tawdry and then the pictures and they're like flipping through the pictures and then roger's losing his shit like um, what is marvin acme getting out of that interaction that's a well, very spe- that's a very look, specific some thing. people are not good people <laughs> there there are fetishes all over the world if the internet has taught us anything i guarantee you if you google erotic patty cake 
you will find something. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, So going back to the novel, uh, this came out in 1981. It wasn't a big hit, but it did catch the attention of some executives at Disney. And they really they bought the rights to the book. And they were really aiming to make this kind of their next big thing. Now, Robert Zemeckis was trying to direct it all the way back in 1982. But at that point, he just had two flops under his belt. He had uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand and Used Cars, which both didn't really connect. So like, all right, we're going to sit on this for a while. Um, and when they were first developing it, this was just going to be purely animated. Like the entire thing was going to be an animated film. And it was when Steven Spielberg came on in 1985 that they decided to kind of hybrid it up a little bit. It was also important that in 1985 is when Michael Eisner took over as CEO of Disney. And he was kind of brought in specifically to turn around Disney's fortunes. We haven't really talked about the company in the 80s, but this was definitely the lowest ebb of all of Disney. Like, all of their movies were flopping. Like, they had a rebellion on the set of uh, uh, Fox and the Hound, where they lost a lot of their best animators, including Don Bluth and Tim Burton. They both left that movie and they went off to form their own careers. Don and to make Bluth, the best Charlie uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie absolutely. ever. Absolutely. The only good one, frankly. <laughs> uh, but Don Bluth went off, formed his own studio with uh, Universal, and they made the movie American Tale, which ate Disney's lunch in yeah. the middle mm-hmm. of the 80s. Like Basically, everything that he was churning out was kind of crushing him. They did uh, uh, Land Before Time and uh, a bunch of movies like that where he was just absolutely dominating. And so Disney really needed to revamp its fortunes. Uh, and Michael Eisner really believed that Who Framed Roger Rabbit was going to be the movie to do it. So they dumped $50 million into this project, which was oh. a ridiculous amount of money for back then. I mean, some estimates say that they went over budget to the point of maybe close to $70 million. Uh, and that was pretty unheard of at this time. But they had Spielberg on board as producer. They had Zemeckis back as a director. And now he was a successful director. He had back-to-back hits with Romancing the Stone and the first Back to the Future. I love Romancing of the Stone. Okay. Like, oh, no. My God, I love that movie. It's I don't know. Movie. I haven't watched it in a while. Hopefully, it holds up. But like, oh, I think it holds up. Yeah, I think uh, it's solid enough. Yeah, uh, it's, it's been a little bit. Kathleen but... Turner. Yes. Uh, I love so Kathleen, Turner. Kathleen Turner in this movie as a voice actress. It's just oh like, my god, so, so uh, good. Un- that... Uncredited, and I'm not clear why. Uh, Which person? I don't did know David why. I, I think Rabbit. there's oh. still some like. It's 1988. You don't want to associate yourself with a cartoon too much if you're trying to be an A-list celebrity at the time. Uh, this is, is pre-Robin Williams doing the genie, keep in mind. Yeah, the, I guess that is true. And there was also like a real risk that this was going to be the movie that kills Disney. You know, this was going to be, mm-hmm. if this had flopped, like this would have been... You don't want really to push your name on that? Yeah, you know, you got to be careful with that, but... But having Spielberg on as a producer, like you mentioned, Jr., like nobody had clout the way that Steven Spielberg in 1985 had clout. That guy could get anything done at that point. Everybody was dying to work with him. So he was able to bridge the gaps between all of these crazy corporate rivalries. Now, it wasn't easy. Like, for instance, we have scenes where uh, Warner Brothers characters and Disney characters are sharing the screen, but they had very specific negotiations about how many words each character could speak and how, like, Bugs couldn't speak more than Mickey or Daffy couldn't speak more than Donald. You know, so they had to really kind of walk that fine line. But they were able to pull it off. This is just a rumor. It has never been officially confirmed. 
But if you look at the behind the scenes uh, brouhaha, it seems pretty probable to me. Apparently, there was supposed to be a non-written down handshake agreement. We are letting you have our Warner Brother characters, Disney, someday. And this day may never come. <laughs> we are going to ask you for a favor in return. <laughs> now on this day, you must give us your Disney characters for our film. And when Warner Brothers made Space Jam, allegedly, never confirmed, but if you look at the behind the scenes, I really do think this happened. They said to Disney, hey, it's only eight years since Roger Rabbit. We'd like to have your Disney characters make a cameo in Space Jam. Whole new crowd at Disney. Everyone who made Roger Rabbit had moved on to other things. Disney allegedly said, hell no. And since then, zero cooperation. There's yeah. never been any crossovers, any smidgen of anything like that. I absolutely believe it because even the new Space Jam, which is just like trying to pile on as much IP as possible, it's still all Warner Brothers IP. Like they weren't able to bring in anything else. And, you know, that is why I argue that Chippendale is the closest thing that we've gotten to this. Obviously a much smaller budget, much worse animation, things like that. But they do have characters from DreamWorks and so, Disney and Warner can Brothers. I, like all real quick. Out. I don't know. Like if you talk about the sequel not, not sequel the subsequent sort of cultural um milestones that like come after this movie where you have animation and live action what do you guys think of cool world or should is that, is oh that a movie oh oh we are gonna oh. cover cool world we are gonna cover cool world <laughs> okay. online um but spoiler shit, it sucks <laughs> yeah did you guys cover that on 30 2010 yet is we did we did cover yeah. it uh last year and uh that is not worthy to smell the droppings of Dumbo in Roger Rabbit. Okay. <laughs> I've never even heard of it. Oh, man. Um, you are in for a treat when we talk about that. I have the, the vaguest recollections. Game. I remember being a child and watching it and remember I, I remember cool Brad. As a child? Uh, my parents were real lax. <laughs> real lax. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, and I just remember Brad Pitt being in it and yeah. like they're just being drama and I remember it not I was like this isn't as good as I thought it would be like I believe the case with that movie was that it was shelved because uh it was terrible but then Thelma and Louise happened and Brad Pitt was suddenly this really hot property and they're like all right we've got this movie with Brad Pitt in it let's shove it out um I'm I'm willing to guess that's the case because that movie is unwatchable um but it's it's uh, at least a fascinating failure so, uh, yeah, like I said, we, we ran through all the different casting options that they were going for. All of them were too expensive. They ended up going with Bob Hoskins, who is this really respected British character actor. He was just off of a Oscar nomination for the movie Mona Lisa, which is uh, excellent, an excellent performance from him in that. And like I said, Spielberg thought he had a film noir face, and it seemed like he was up to the acting challenge because... Like we already said, like he basically had to invent an entirely new kind of acting in this movie. And I think he still does it better than 90% of the people who have followed in his footsteps. Like, I will argue Bob Hoskins and Brendan Fraser are the two actors in the world that are best at interacting with characters that are not there. 
Like hmm. I, that, that's that's my gauntlet that I'm throwing down. I'm, I'm what, what taking, makes you think Brendan Fraser? Look at him in like uh, Looney Tunes back in action or in uh, uh, the Mummy movies, okay. things like that. Like he brings a lot of uh, a verisimilitude to it because he just he commits and he he can really convey that like well, we're looking at something that is. I know there. that the the guy who voiced uh, Roger Rabbit would dress up in Roger Rabbit's outfit yes. and be behind the camera. Yeah. Um, the the entire production. Like, <laughs> I mean, it is it is absolutely fascinating. JR can attest. It's fascinating to watch the behind the scenes stuff and see what they do. It's like uh, Roger shaped dummies for sometimes when he's strangling mm-hmm. it. Sometimes it's like a ro- there's a robot uh, plate smashing machine that kind of like uh, is is uh, when the record starts skipping. If you and- look when Robert Roger jumps on the bed, the blanket smushes down. So they had to create some type of robot or a grip underneath and being smothered by a mattress for three hours to pull it down slightly whenever Roger moved. But again, if that was made today, they'd just have it all be CGI and it wouldn't look as real. My personal... So I I think each one of us probably has something that we're like, oh my God, this thing is what made me really like love the tech that they did in this movie, the tech and the acting and the care. And mine was when um, Roger Rabbit uh, um, touched the back of his dead brother's chair and he left three finger marks. Yes. I'm just like, oh, yeah. yeah. So fu- Unbelievable. So good. So good. Such a flex, too, because at that point, like the first time you're watching it, you're not even thinking about that. You're not even thinking about, oh, how they do that, how they do it. It's only after subsequent rewatches. And even now, like I said, I've maybe seen this movie 30 times in my life. Even now, there are still little details that I just completely take for granted. Oh, speaking of details, the jokes per minute and the jokes per minute in like subtle background jokes, like things that you like that hit differently at different ages. Yeah. Um, like it was just like uh, there's so much going on, but you never feel overwhelmed. No. And I think that is a very fine line to tread in a comedy uh, when you have so much um, action and you have this potential like straight man funny man character the straight man is um for those you don't know comedy turns is like a, a sto- more stoic yeah. uh a character that reacts um uh in a, the base reality um and um this this fantastic um relationship between the two um that could can be overwhelmed or be ineffective at the slightest drop of the hat mm-hmm. but it works so well in this movie no and it's it's just also Seamless, and a lot of the credit has to go to the animation director here. I wanted to spend 30 seconds on Richard Williams because this is a fascinating guy. Richard Williams is a uh, British Canadian animator, he's been around since like the 50s, uh, and he's famously brilliant and famously eccentric. And he hates working in the studio system, so he made most of his money early on, like doing commercials and then animating some short films, some of which got him some Oscar attention. But the bulk of his career from 1964 until 1995 was spent working on his magnum opus, which he was hand animating by himself. It was called The Thief and the Cobbler. And he was trying to get this thing done for 30 plus years. Now, after 20 years of working on it in 1984, he only had about 15 minutes of it done. And he wanted to finish this thing out. And because... He kept like bringing demo reels to studios and being told it's too uncommercial because he wanted it to be a silent film, 
uh, uh, retelling the Arabian Nights, you know, like it's, it's a weird prospect to try and get off the ground. But he came on as the animation director for this movie in exchange for Disney giving him the money to finish his film and then giving it a release, which technically they did. They gave him the money, they finished the film, they released it. However, they changed it almost entirely. Like the film that you see now is not really the vision that he wanted. And he still kind of refused. Well, he uh, he's died a few years ago, but he refused to talk about it for years after that. The final film adds celebrity voice actors. It adds musical numbers. And they gave it like a tiny, 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 like single weekend release through the Miramax label because they were worried that the themes would conflict with Aladdin. And they didn't want kids to get that, those two movies confused. Thief and the Cobbler, you can find it. It's worth tracking down. Uh, sometimes it's called Arabian Night. I just always love that story. The fact that it, so it took somebody 30 years to hand animate this film. And then it just kind of came and, <laughs> and went. And then Disney ruined it. And then Disney ruined it, as they are wont to do. I agree it's maybe not the most commercial prospect. But, yeah, you know. I've, I've tried to watch it. I've never got through the finished version. Have you? I have, yeah. I mean, I'm okay. not going to argue it's a great movie, but it's a really fascinating one. And I am interested to see what the version of it that Williams wanted to make would have been. And it's very jarring to see, like, 60s-style animation and 90s-style animation, like, in the same movie. It bounces back and forth from frame to frame sometimes. It's a very odd film. Uh, see, so here's well, where I will go in. Uh, for your listeners who don't know, I am a very minor filmmaker. I have made a film. Film is a collaborative effort. No one person can make a film. And you have to be willing to take in input from other people. And if you don't do that, almost never is the film a great, enjoyable work. And that's what I think the problem with uh, that film is it it it's too much one man's vision he needed yeah. collaborators he needed people to say well I get what you're going for but that doesn't really work what if we did x y and z instead yeah I think you need somebody to kind of like check some of your impulses George Lucas excuse me sorry I got something <laughs> caught in my throat just there I don't know what happened what? Well, you're telling me that Indiana Jones finding aliens wasn't fantastic. <laughs> the aliens are the least offensive part of that movie. It could have worked. You, you guys don't know the boxer opening with JR right now. No, He's the like, world's biggest I, indie fan. I am the biggest. Like I love Indiana Jones, and I, when I watched that movie, I, like the South Park made an entire episode about my feelings. So, oh God! Um, oh, um, oh! I can't watch that episode. Um, but I think the main thing, like you don't, you don't need a CGI gopher in the opening sequence of your show. Yeah. Like that. Like this is the opening sequence world where we have, um, the um the, um the rolling boulder oh, yeah. we have the i personally love temple of doom uh like the temple the, of doom opening oh, is phenomenal. the temple of doom opening with the musical number and it is so fucking good uh, and then of course the the last crusade opening number with the kids on horseback and just going across it like it's so good yeah and then you have an opening number with a cgi gopher <laughs> it's very jarring <laughs> Let's move on. And let's move on because I can see the rage boiling behind your (laughs) eyes. That was like a 2003 CG gopher as well. Well, so this movie finally, it did come together. It wound up being a huge, huge hit. And it kind of 
it saved Disney's prospects at least a little bit. It was an expensive film, but it was the second highest grossing movie of the year behind only Rain Man. And uh, it just became this massive critical and commercial darling. It was nominated for seven Oscars. It won like all the technical awards as it should have. And then after that, it was basically radio silence for Roger. We got two short films that came out uh, before other Disney films. I think there was one that came out before uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and another before Rescuers Down Under, if I remember correctly. Yeah, there, there were three of them. Oh, um, there were three. There were three. Uh, so it was Tummy Trouble, mm-hmm. Roller Coaster Rabbit, and Trail Mix-Up. Okay, I think I forgot Trail about Roller Coaster Mix-Up Rabbit. Trail Mix-Up came out... I'd- uh, with a far off place, and no one remembers that except for Trail Mix Up. That's right. Okay, because that that was like just kind of a maudlin like teen drama that they were trying mm. to get people into the crowds with with uh, the promise and, of a Roger short. It's so stupid. Okay, Disney messed this up because the deal they have with Spielberg is he has veto power. He can mm. just say no. And they can't progress with anything Roger Rabbit. And he was like, hey, I'm making this film Arachnophobia. I want a Roger Rabbit short in front of it to uh, bump up my numbers. And Disney went, no, most uh, successful director of all time. We're going to put it in front of our movie instead. What are you going to do about it? Say no to Roger Rabbit for the next 30 years? Ha, I'd like to see that happen. (laughs) That is basically what happened. I mean, we really, we literally, again, I'm going to mention it again, but we do not see Roger Rabbit on screen again until Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. He has a cameo in that, uh, doing the Roger Rabbit on the dance floor appropriately enough. But So uh, does the Chip and Dale movie canonically take place in the Roger Rabbit universe? I don't think so. I have no idea because the, the whole concept of Toontown has sort of survived beyond the Roger Rabbit movies because of the video game, right? There was that Toontown online video game that was really And Toontown, Disney World. I mean, it's a natural fit. It's just like, hey, kids, wouldn't it be cool if you could walk around in the same place all your cartoon lives? Yes, Disney, I would like that as a 10-year-old child. Here, take my parents' money. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes sense, but Roger really kind of got left out of the whole legacy behind that, you know? So... It feels like this had such strong sequel potential. I know in 1989, uh, a very, very young J.J. Abrams was actually writing the screenplay for a sequel that was going to take place in World War II. Oh. And I think that Ooh. would be a weird vibe. That would vibe. be a prequel that uh, takes place in 1947. It's a prequel, yeah. And uh, Spielberg vetoed it because he was working on a movie called Schindler's List. And he oh. felt that maybe poking fun at Nazis while he's making this very serious Holocaust drama might not be the best vibe. Uh, and I think he was probably right about that. But but yeah, like you said, JR, it's, it's really hard to make this happen again, especially when everybody is so proprietary about their IP and nobody wants to share. Nobody is willing to uh, figure out the intricacies of all the legal mumbo jumbo that goes into bringing together all the characters like so, this. Yeah, it's I'm, such I'm a shame. For, uh, before we talk about the movie, the actual substance of the movie yeah. a little bit more, uh, I could see a world where this movie failed. Yeah, of I yeah. really love this movie, but that's not a guarantee. A good movie isn't a guarantee of a success. And I was looking at the other movies that came out that year, and I was just trying to figure out 
why this movie was a success and like I, I guess it's just because it's good or because it's the animation like it's so so good I mean it's doing um, something on a scale that nobody had really seen before because like we we'd had animated uh, live action crossovers going back to like Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks and stuff like that but that always felt like one person is dancing and then cartoons are happening around them you know yeah. this feels fully integrated this isn't so much us going into their world except for that one sequence this is them coming into our world which is much harder to pull that off. weasel had a tommy gun the yeah. weasel had a gun yeah i mean it's, oh it's... Uh, let's talk about other reasons this could never be made today there are guns in a kids movie and yeah. uh, they save the day uh there's a scene where eddie valiant gets cigarettes from children yeah and Jessica Rabbit is an incredible sexual creature in this film. All right. Disney we... does not know what to do with Jessica Rabbit today, even though she's been a success for 35 years. Okay. We, we need to talk about Jessica Rabbit. Here. <laughs> Jessica yeah. Rabbit is so iconic for so many reasons, but she is so unlike anything that Disney has ever produced before or since. Like, she is such a singularly weird She has creature. her roots in Betty Boop. And that Betty, sure. Betty Boop in that outfit, like, in that scene was a very, like, homage to... And there were, all, there, there were sexy women that the wolf whistled at mm -hmm. in the classic cartoons. Uh, but Jessica Rabbit definitely takes it up a notch. And especially <laughs> singing Why Don't You Do Right... <clears throat> in such a sultry voice yeah like it's definitely like the entire thing was like uh I, it, it's more provocative than a lot of overtly provocative <laughs> now, scenes. having seen this movie when i was a young child as many people did yeah um i there was this movie the origin of Jiggle physics. <laughs> uh, like, I mean, okay. So, listeners, uh, the reason Jessica Rabbit's jiggles seem so unusual is because the animators watched the jiggling of real breast and then made it so that Jessica's breast jiggled in the reverse motion interesting so they're they're constantly like perking up i mm. swear boss i'm doing research <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what uh, intern gets that job i thought they did a yeah. remarkable job on the sparkly nature of her dress as well i read that they yeah. had to shine light through a plastic bag somehow to get uh, the sequence to shine i've been reading about that for 35 years and i still don't understand it i'm like i what how okay i don't get it yeah, it's it's it makes her all the more surreal that like the fabric of her dress does not seem to be of the same reality that she is. Like it's mm -hmm. clinging to her obviously in all the right ways, but it is not all on the right her body ways. in a particular way. <laughs> right. Look, I'm not going to go into all the prepubescent effects that Jessica <laughs> Rabbit had on me, but you know, uh, I will say this: she was probably my sexual awakening. I mean, that's yeah, not that, unusual. It's that's either unusual. Who Framed Roger Rabbit or The Mummy? 
Yeah. The mummy. <laughs> the mummy. The mummy's a big, I've, I've heard the mummy cited as a big bisexual awakening because just everybody in that movie's hot. Um, but yeah, no, for sure. And I think that's a common sentiment with her. And uh, it, it, she really stands out as the most iconic character. I mean, looking at the cover of the NES video game, she's the most prominent character on there. Like, she's not even a playable character in the game, but it's a big Jessica she, Rabbit with Roger poking her, his head out behind her. And she, even she was at. Go ahead. Uh, she was the logo of Pleasure Island for decades, you know, uh, <laughs> oh. in Disney World. And you can still that. find uh, Jessica Rabbit merch, even though Disney wants nothing to do with it. They yeah. can't stop it. The fans, 35 years later, still want everything to do with Jessica Rabbit. And, you know, uh, let's just they... say if I had to bet – who has the most rule 34 out there in the world? I, I'd yeah. put some money on Jessica. I mean, they've already done so much of the work for us, you know, like <laughs> it's already there. But I guarantee like I would like to see like a like an eight episode Jessica Rabbit Disney Plus series. You know, like I, I want to see what's up with this character and like I want to see it recontextualized. Uh, again, another reason why they couldn't make well, this movie today is that Jessica Rabbit takes off the dude's pants. She takes off pants, yeah. yeah. She shines a guy's head in a very provocative way. Like, I, I don't know. I like to but feel like a little bowling ball. She, she's actually a wonderful character, too. Yes, I mean, yeah, I, she is. I, yeah. I, 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 she has a depth. She has motivation. She's smart. She's uh, living in her world. She's doing the best. She has agency. She has everything you would want in a femme fatale character with a heart of gold. Yeah. Oh my I mean, gosh. That's a great setup that like we were made to believe that she is the femme fatale archetype this entire movie and, and getting that great little twist of her actually being sweet and in love with Roger, which makes that bit all the funnier because the whole gag is obviously like, why would she ever want to be with Roger? So obviously like she's two time in him, obviously like he, the rabbit's just like uh, uh, oblivious, but no, she genuinely loves him and like is a very loyal, caring wife to him. I love when they're in Toontown and they come out and the car's trashed and uh, she goes, guess we'll have to take your car. And he goes, uh, somebody already did. And she's like, oh, my Roger was never that good at driving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. see, just little affectionate <laughs> things like that. Yeah, I mean it's it is a she really sweet character. She loves Roger, hundred yeah. percent. No, and it's very. In, sweet. in fact, she loves him enough that the entire reason that there is a movie is because she's willing to potentially. And like, I, it's pretty clear that they both probably were, knew that they would be able to make up afterwards. Oh yeah, but she's like, I need to. I'm going to save his career. Yeah, like I have to do something here. Yeah, I mean, like you said, like this. This definitely hits all of the film noir archetype beats without making it feel super winky. This doesn't feel like uh, like they're joking about like film noir. They're making a straight film noir. And if there are wacky comedic moments in it, that's because in this reality, wacky comedic moments are breaking out all the time. It doesn't mean that your investigation isn't serious all of a sudden. It's just the world you live and in. And some... So Go ahead. there was a sequel to Chinatown. And yes, there was a the planned days. conclusion to the Chinatown trilogy. And that conclusion was all about Cloverleaf ending the streetcar system. Yeah. This is 
the conclusion to the Chinatown trilogy. <laughs> they should have called it the Three Jakes. Uh, that way I wouldn't be confused. We need more Jakes uh, in this thing. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of is. That's crazy. Like, yeah, no, it, it is digging into that real thing that happened in L.A. where uh, the trolley cars were dismantled and put, uh, replaced with freeways, you know. So making life in L.A. infinitely better. I'm sure everyone in L.A. can attest. It's very easy to get around and a lot of But fun. I can guarantee you that almost everybody in L.A. needs a car. Yes, they do. Um, the One of the things that I also thought was interesting about this movie, and it's one of the reasons why, like, I like film noir, but then at times, like, so many film noir movies that I've seen, uh, and I'm by far not an expert, uh, are a little or a lot misogynistic. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. To sometimes exceptional uh, levels of misogyny. And this I'm, movie. I'm assuming, Jay Ben, you're laughing because you strongly disagree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this, You've never heard that before. This movie does a good job of, like, even when. Uh, Valiant is being a little like he 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 hits that line a little bit with uh, his love interest. However, oh, it's yeah. still very clear the entire time that both of them are in on the joke. Yeah, and uh, it's yeah. Well, I think this comes to the brilliance of casting Bobby H. Because if you had Harrison Ford, you'd kind of want Harrison Ford to flirt with Jessica Rabbit. Like, by having somebody who is, like, like, is not interested in a tune. Yeah. um, And, like, is not... Well, and I don't know. There's something about... So this all film noir, almost all film noir, has this weird thing where like smacking a broad around is like a thing. Yeah, yeah. and it's just like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, you're Stop it. That's you what down. will turn me off of a lot of film noir because I'm just like, all right, well now I hate the character that I'm stuck following. Yeah, because I'm not down with that. Even when we were playing the game, you can punch people, and I was just like about to wail off and sack somebody in the face, and then I realized, oh shit, that's not a dude, that's a woman. Justin, you I'm gonna man. go to the next room and punch that guy, or I think I punched the guy out front. Well, he'll just tell you to buzz off. <laughs> yeah, oh, before we get to the game, we should yeah, yeah we should still because yeah. like this, so this movie does like have um have really solid heart like a really solid core yeah and having like it's so because like with a lesser actor talking about how your brother died by from having a piano dropped on his head is a, a fucking punchline yeah. but it's not a punchline <laughs> here uh you know it it, it is it's but it is, funny it's not. it is funny it's, it's funny. still funny but you also do understand the gravitas behind it it's yeah. also when they first reveal that uh what's his name had been killed by the safe being dropped on him. Sure. Uh, there was that moment where the, I don't think I ever caught the person's name, but it's like the LA detect LAPD mm-hmm. detective. Zantino. Zantino. Where he's like, he made a joke about it and then he looks and goes, Oh, sorry. And then like Valiant actually right. seemed a little like, bro, yeah, come on. Was like, dude, come on. Watch like, it. look, yeah. my brother died very similarly to this. Yeah, and I mean, Eddie, like all good uh, film noir heroes, is a uh, flawed kind of anti-hero. Not even necessarily an anti-hero, but he's got his flaws, he's got his demons, and uh, he's got his prejudices that he needs uh, to overcome. Alcoholism. Alcoholism, uh, which yeah. he cures oh. pretty easily. Turns out all you need to do is just dump it and shoot the bottle. <laughs> 
with Wiley e. Coyote's gun, yes. which oh, yeah. in that scene was animated, and in the following scenes was not animated. That was a practical. That's the one slight little cheat is that uh, when he's in Toontown, you can see he's just holding like the big, thick, yeah, physical but gun. Is this where I throw the wrench in? Uh-oh. I fucking hated Roger Rabbit. Really? Oh, interesting. I I don't know if it's just my particular neurodivergence, but I hate most things that I watch when there's just somebody who is irrationally, situationally just dumb. Mm. Yeah, like I don't know the, the right. And I know, like, I know no, that's the point. I know, right. but it's still Let's... just a thing that always grates on me. Let's no drill down to one specific scene. Roger Rabbit is in the handcuffs, and they're going through all this wackiness. And then uh, he uh, is Eddie Valiant is sawing the handcuff, and then Roger says, "Okay, let me take my hand out." Yeah, and Eddie Valiant does says, this help? "Could you do that at any time?" And Roger Rabbit says, "No, no, no, only when it was funny." Okay, yeah. was Roger Rabbit literally speaking the truth? Is his superpower as a tune that he could not do that unless it was funny? I think it's like dancing. I, I think that uh, tunes hear the beat of comedy and then they move at the beat of comedy. And so, like, exactly like he has to do the, the knocks, the... Yeah. You know, he, he has... I don't think they picked that... The microphone picked that up, but imagine... He did the knocks. I'm, do, I'm doing the knocks. The... Um, and it's just like because he has to respond to it, uh, just like he has to respond to the timing when the record skips. So I think I think being a tune is very much like playing by a song that no one else hears. Yeah, I mean, I I like to I have always read it that it is like that he is being literal, that it is compulsive, that that is like literally he would not have been able to get out of those handcuffs unless it would have been funny. Uh, but the that raises a lot of questions about like, is he playing to us, the audience, or is he thinking that this is going to be funny for Eddie? Because Eddie did not find it funny. So like, subjectively, is it just that need to be funny to him? I don't know. It opens up a lot of. Doors. I I got it. Felt a little bit cathartic when he was drowning him in the sink. <laughs> oh, mean, mean. But you know, like, it's so funny that you say this because I have to say I'm some I'm you sometimes on the same page as you when it comes to grading characters. Mm. But I don't find Roger Rabbit to be grading and I don't know whether or not that's because I was exposed to this when I was a child. I definitely found Bobby H to be funnier than I remembered. Like I do find myself as an adult laughing more at Bobby H because uh, that's more like us now. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> We're like becoming when I was a child, jaded humans. I definitely loved laughing at the the cartoons. One thing to to go back to the misogyny. I don't mind Jessica Rabbit. What yeah. I do, I hate, fucking hate, is Baby Herman slapping that woman yes, on the ass. Yes. Yes. I, I forgot hate about it. that. And Again, it's just like um, intentional. I think. I don't like, know. It's we're definitely yeah. intentional. Yeah. We're it's, meant. It's it's the it's coding for the audience that even though this character is a baby, he's a horrible garbage human being or two. Yeah, yeah. no, I or completely is, agree, and I got a man that. In his 30s but who just presents a, as a lot baby. of people might bring up um, other aspects of this movie, and I don't necessarily like. I don't really have a problem. Like, I really like Jessica Rabbit's character, um, and I thought like I really like a lot of what they do with Jessica Rabbit, uh, but. Uh, 
uh, I don't know the whole that I I don't know. There's also, mm, I on don't the know. plus side. What? Uh, not again, I feel similarly. I had actually forgotten about that moment, and as soon as you said his name, I was like, "Oh right, he is that little shit." Deserved to be kicked down the elevator. I think uh, he deserved to lose his stogie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least we know for no me, real woman was harmed. No, but because I'm, he wasn't real. For me, unlike sometimes where that at least looks like that was a real slap. Yes. <laughs> I think for me, like, see, you got the dogs going. For me, I always feel like uh, Baby Herman is maybe the least creepy talking baby in film history. Like, I hate a talking baby. I will take Baby Herman over the boss baby Um, any goddamn day of the week. Now, I will clarify that and say that he is the biggest creep talking baby. Yeah. But he is not the creepiest talking baby. No, the biggest creep talking baby is the one from the E-Trade commercials who's, like, always talking about, like, hitting on other women at the office. Like, I hate that I don't think I've ever seen I don't remember those commercials. They tried to make a sitcom off of him called Bob the Baby. It was unwatchable. Anyway, that's 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 our Bob the Baby minute here. Um, yeah, but going back to Roger, like that is a complaint I've heard a lot about this movie is that Roger is kind of annoying and I've never found Roger annoying. Like, obviously it's a huge performance, you know, and Charles, Charles Fleischer, who does the voice must have done some unbelievable damage to his vocal cords doing some of those screams. Think about that scream that he has in the opening. Well, basically the opening four minutes is just sustained high pitched screaming. Uh, as Roger's like running around, like trying to prevent the baby from catching itself on fire. Like I feel bad for what his voice must've been like after a day in the studio there, but I think (laughs) it's it's a good performance. I think Roger is, uh, he's going so big because Hoskins is going so small. Like, I think we need those wild contrasts to see that just how alien these two worlds are. It's it's funny you mentioned that because that opening scene is the scene that reminded me of how much I was about to dislike Roger Rabbit. Oh, <laughs> and like, again, I'll, I'll preface this by saying like, I understand that that was the intent of the character to some degree. Yeah. Um, and like, I don't hate the movie because of it, no. but man, was he just irritating the hell out of me? Yeah. <laughs> like near the end, he got better because he started actually helping. Yeah. And if you are trying to help and making mistakes, and to me, that is okay. Yeah. But if you're supposed to be laying low because you're wanted for murder and they come back to the bar and you're putting on a show for everyone, maybe you suck. But that's the point. Okay, but, but that, that's who flawed. he is. People are flawed. He has a compulsive need to make people laugh. And his whole speech about how sometimes laughter is the only thing we have in this world that's that's who he is he he needs to make you laugh Look, and he needs to be that obstacle for eddie at the same time because eddie is so opposite in every way but he they have these shared interests and so he needs to kind of be wrangling him to add tension to the stakes what about i really loved benny the car yeah benny the car benny also the car. charles fleischer yeah but really i yeah. didn't know that yeah, he did both um, yeah, I believe it was originally supposed to be Jim Belushi, and uh, they they uh, he couldn't make it the last minute, so Charles Fleischer did both. Like, hey, you're already here. Do you mind? Uh, yeah, being a car too. Yeah, I think he did. He did a great job. Yeah, it's a really that sequence is still so amazing because again, no cheats. Like you are seeing a human man driving down a human street in an animated car, and 
they this was like where they built kind of a little go-kart right like in real mm -hmm. life like he's just kind of driving a go-kart with a green screen mounted to it and they'd use that in back to the future uh two and three. Oh, i didn't know oh, that. oh yeah, yeah okay yeah i believe it i believe it yeah i mean it's a great little chase sequence in the middle and uh yeah we i love the logic of having a cartoon car chase like they really stick with it they have levers that'll make your car grow and you know wise cracking cabs and everything like that yeah no benny is great all right. um, this is my the, final thing on thing they would never do today because they'd never build a go-kart today. They wouldn't no. do that. They would no. all be green screen. Uh, in the Ink and Paint Club, they built that club eight feet off the ground so the puppeteers could hold the trays that the cartoon animals were holding. And it just – it works. I mean, you are in the never Ink would and have Paint noticed Club. It. Never would have when, noticed. Yeah. When, when – Jessica Rabbit does her performance. You can believe that she's up there on stage. And by God, is this an amazing film. It's a, it's a movie about a bygone era made in a time that is now a bygone era with tech that doesn't even remotely look like it's a bygone era. Yeah. It's unbelievable. That, that's the crazy thing to me because – uh, I was going to go to school for post-production, doing special effects and stuff. Didn't work out. But I at least, like, understand enough to know, like, I know how you would do it in modern-day times in order to try to get stuff like parallax and the, the the actual, like, angles to line up on everything. Yeah. But they were still cutting film. Yeah. And yeah. piecing things together. They didn't have anywhere near as much of luxury as to do that. And so for them to get it so right with so little tools doing everything the hardest way that we in modern times could think of is great. Uh, they it's... did such a good job that there was – obviously it was a cartoon. So you get a little bit of uh, suspension of disbelief. But even then, it was rare that there was a moment that they felt out of place unless they were supposed to. It, this The production, like the behind-the-scenes stuff, kind of has a little bit of the energy of like something like Mythbusters for yeah. me. Because it's, it's that whole idea of people with a whole lot of enthusiasm and a whole lot of technical ability trying to solve a really weird specific problem and having a great time doing it. Well, fun it. fact, you you know that that's what they did before Mythbusters, right? Yeah, of course. They, yeah, were, they were special, special effects, effects artists, artists. Yeah, and they so did all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and um, so it's, it kind of carries that energy. It's so interesting because I feel like one of the reasons that this movie works so well is that they establish the stakes early on with the the devastating moment of the shoe. Um, and oh so like God. when the actual, like the... Um, the scene where you have this goo that can murder all the Toontown uh, and you've got Roger and Jessica like hanging and constantly they're safe. They're not safe. They're safe. They're not safe. And I just feel like that scene works so well. And I feel like that scene is the only scene where you can sort of see the edges of, um, of the practical effects in the, the destruction of Judge Doom, mm. and um, and I, I watched this on a really big screen, uh, high def. So I was like, oh, so that was the only moment in the entire rewatch that I was like, oh, okay, maybe this was a, a, a little dated. But other than that, it completely holds up. And I love the way they kill Doctor Doom mm. with the the tune death of um, 
steamroller, steam yeah. uh, and then a, a dip, the dip, which he desperately yeah. deserved. Can, um, can I just point out uh, where I come from? Doctor Doom, Judge Doom, the countryside. Uh, Dip is chewing tobacco. Yes. And so every time they said it, I had to have that moment where I'm like, oh, right, the goo. I think I would rather be dipped in the dip from this movie than to be dipped in the dip oh, from for uh, sure. Skull. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I would rather. Yeah, do no, that. that stuff is disgusting. But uh, have you ever ha- tried it? No. I haven't either. I, th- I think it's like I've never done any tobacco products. I'm like, a okay. I've seen it, I've smelt it. Didn't need to go any further than that. I, I smoked cigarettes for like six years and uh, even then uh, would not go near the dip. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it was they they do so many things well in terms of like pacing and setting the stakes because up at the front, you're like, this guy will straight up murder people on a whim. And he's, he's gunning for that rabbit. He's got a real chill vibe. He's really cool with everybody, and everyone just likes him. You know, yeah. I mean, there's really they don't try to make any mystery in this movie about who the villain is because obviously it's going to be this guy. Like, it'd be a great twist if he oh, was not the villain. Say, Those weasels a... were so creepy. Weasels are creepy. Yeah. 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 He. Yeah. He could have not been the villain, but he was, regardless, a villain yeah. from the start. And, like, when it he turns out to be the villain, you're like, yeah. fair? I, the, <laughs> he seems well, like a villain. The one I, final sequence I want to talk about, because I want to move on to the game. I have so much to say about this game as well. But the one final sequence that I would be remiss if we did not talk about was Toontown. Uh, mm-hmm. Such an iconic sequence. Always my favorite when I was a kid. Now... I think I tend to prefer everything around it because Toontown is the one moment where there's not a whole lot of mystery about how they did it. It's Bob Hoskins on a green screen. We understand how that works now. But there is still a whole lot of joy going into all of these sequences. I love how these do feel like a cartoon. They feel like a classic like Saturday morning cartoon that we grew up on. But there is some grittiness to Toontown that I think it gets lost in the Disneyland attraction and the game where everything's just bright and sunny and colorful. There are back alleys in Toontown. Like there are, there's grain to things. There's texture. Things are falling apart. Things are ugly. Like I, I really appreciate the level of uh, detail that they put into. And the danger. There's, there's like, danger. there's constant danger everywhere in Toontown. Especially for somebody who's not seemingly invincible. Except apparently you are. So, like, I guess that's the thing. Like, Toons... What? No, no. Eddie Valiant could have totally died in Toontown in multiple yeah. points. When when he's falling from a great height, he is in fear of his life. Oh, God. oh I guess he does get caught. <laughs> yep. there but was... I was thinking about him in the elevator when the elevator starts going up really fast and he shrinks down into a puddle. Like, he can physically adapt to the world in Toontown the way Toons cannot. Like, Toons are just Toons always. But he becomes a Toon when he goes into Toontown. But, yeah, apparently, yeah, he can die. Uh, yeah. there, there was that one part in the factory where he absolutely gets dropped from a great height. And they literally just cut away and then cut back to him not falling. No. And I was like, because he would have died. And if you would have showed us that sequence, we would have went. Huh. Oh, like his head in the light fixture? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, where he goes up, his head hits the light fixture, gets electrocuted, and then it just cuts away, and then it cuts back, and he's fine, so, not uh, dead on the floor. The physics yeah, are like Electricity flexible. won't always kill you. He was on the ceiling of a warehouse. Yeah. 
the, the physics are flexible, but I just wanted to shout out that sequence. I think it's unbelievable. I, I have to transition to this game now because... Do you have to? We gotta, we gotta. Yeah. For well, whatever we got reason, an expert, so. I think we're noticing that like the higher quality the movie that we watch, the lower quality of the game. We've really struggled with E.T., with Vertigo, with Jaws, and now we're going to struggle a lot with Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the game. This came out in September of 1989. It's exclusive for the NES. Uh, before we get to talk about the game, I think it's worth mentioning that this is one of the first handful of games from Rare. Uh, those who yeah, uh, that was surprising uh, when you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, Rare are uh, legendary video game developers who made Donkey Kong Country and Goldeneye and Banjo Kazooie and Viva Pinata. So many games that are I'm gonna say better than this one. I'm gonna argue that maybe this game uh, isn't up to their usual standards. Maybe, um, maybe. But there, there are a couple different versions of Roger Rabbit and video games, uh, which all kind of end up going away in the early nine after the early nineties. But we have this game, we have a PC game, which is more of a straight up like first person point and click adventure. There's a Game Boy game, and then Roger Rabbit gets tied up in the weird ass ca Crazy Castle series. Do you know about Crazy Castle, Jr? Mm -hmm, I do. It's depending on which sequel you're playing or what part of the world you're in, it's going to be a wildly different character representing it. So in the States, it was Bugs Bunny, but over in Japan, it was Roger Rabbit, and then it was Mickey Mouse, and then in Europe, it was Garfield, Felix the Cat, and Ghostbusters. So like depending on which version of which game you were playing, you're getting all of those characters these sound like wildly different games. And they're all just the games about like going upstairs and opening doors. Like they're pretty boring oh, hey. action puzzle platformer games. Wild. Well, similar to this game, actually. <laughs> all right. So, JR, you, yep. this is one that you grew up with. I did. I did. So I remember bringing this game along on a couple of visits to my grandma's house. So... You know, she was an elderly woman. She didn't really care what I did. So it was like, okay, grandson, plug in your Atari. It's a <laughs> Nintendo, Grandma. Whatever. And uh, just play it as much as you enjoy. Okay. So playing Roger Rabbit again and again and again because I started playing it when there was no strategy guide. I mean yeah. – this is a dense game. You have to, like, figure out so much on your own. And I remember going around to every single building again and again and again, searching everything, uh, fighting the weasels. Um, so, listeners, this is kind of an open-world game, as much as a 1991 uh, yes. NES game can be. So yeah. you go we, around... We... We really struggled trying to figure out how to classify this game and how to get into it because I guess really this is sort of like a point-and-click adventure game to a degree, with, more so than like a platformer. It's a point-and-click adventure game with randomized uh, loot and randomized yes. enemies uh, where you have to use your action buttons. And the yes. action is, is not that exciting. 
we this is where we ran into trouble because usually like in some of these games we'll start them up and if we're struggling to figure out what to do obviously let's hop onto the old uh, uh wiki facts or whatever let's look up a walkthrough the first walkthrough i find says oh by the way i'm not going to be able to tell you where any of these items are because everything in this game is randomized so it's going to be in a different place every time so the whole thrust of this game is that you, you're controlling Eddie Valiant, and you have Roger kind of just buzzing uselessly around you the entire Getting time. hit by cars. Getting hit but by cars. problems. I'm slightly amazed in retrospect that you could have an AI sidekick in your NES game at the time. That's, that's kind of surprising. AI <clears throat> might be a bit of a stretch with Roger. Like, he doesn't <laughs> do anything. He comes into the frame, he walks back and forth, and he poses an obstacle because when you're in the overworld map, he can get snatched by crows or by weasels. Or so, by cars. Or, or run over by cars. <laughs> I, and, my Roger got ran over a lot, which is why I say it. So, yeah. With, for people familiar with point-and-click adventure games, it's a it's a progression, you know. It's find this item to unlock this door, which will lead to this item, which will give you this clue, which will et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this game is exactly so, that. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, sorry to interrupt. No, but something please. that I always talk about in all of these things is uh, my reflections on gaming music. And the score oh. of the actual movie, uh, I think it was Silvestri, mm-hmm. I want to say. Yes. Um Amazing. Fantastic. Uh, great song choice. Uh, great score. Uh, the song on this game is so repetitive and so annoying, I had to turn the sound off. I could not deal with the fucking score I think this video game. this is the first time we had to actually kill the sound like because <laughs> something about that really short snippet of music that was playing in a constant loop as we were trying and failing to figure out what to do was really hammering it home yeah because like we were saying it's it's a game where you need to you know your first task is to go to the club right you're going na, to na, club, na, 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 na. <laughs> na 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 did it na, get na, into your na, na, <laughs> It was burned. Hours. Burned into my brain. <laughs> I mean, this I, is what we. This is exactly what we were worried about. I legit think I might have played this more total hours than I played Skyrim. Oh, oh my god! No. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, okay. You got to remember what it was like in 1988. You got yeah. one NES game for your birthday and one NES game. For Christmas, and that was it. Yep. And I was such a huge Roger fan that this was just like my instant buy. So, again, there was no other way to live in the Roger Rabbit world other than this game. So I threw myself into it again and and again and again, and we'll get to why I played it multiple times at the end. Hint, why is not punching Judge Doom a meme? That should yeah. <laughs> totally be like internet slang at this point for some incredibly hard video game thing that is not worth a reward. Absolutely not. Yeah. Like, so the, the progression of this game, you go to the Ink and Paint Club, you need to get in, but you need the password. The password is written on a piece of paper. The only way to find that piece of paper is to go to one of several dozen identical gray block (laughs) buildings, wander around inside, and talk to people. Now, if they tell you there's something to find here, great. You can look around in this location until you find something. Sometimes it's on the floor. You can just pick it up. Great. 
other times it's hidden in one of many uh, dresser drawers, mouse holes, potted plants, things that you have to interact with. Now, interacting with them means walking up close to them, pressing the search button, and waiting like three to four seconds as the screen says searching, only to turn up nothing. That was the majority of our experience, to the point where we thought the game was broken. We went to every building, we talked to every person. We could not find this scrap of paper anywhere. Not only could we not find the scrap of paper anywhere, but we found like three things total. Yeah, like and they were all fish bones. <laughs> and like this was, we put a solid how long into it? About an hour. About an hour at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, w- well, we put obviously like half an you hour are not uh, 1988 kids who are free time <laughs> millionaires because an hour, <laughs> I laugh at your time. You do an hour in your sleep. <laughs> That's is I, wild. So this is interesting. So with this game, like like for people who've played Skyrim, there's always a time where you play it to like four or five in the fucking morning and you're like strung out. Did you I get strung out on this game? Yeah, I did because I was going to every single building and there was no way to push a fast forward button in the searching. So I was searching and then the goddamn weasels would come up and I'd have to fist fight them or... Uh, figure out their dumb, stupid dad jokes before dad jokes were, you know, a popular thing. <laughs> this is such a weird mechanic. Yeah, every once in a while, the weasels will pop out. They'll grab Roger, and you could stop them from killing him if you can give them the punchline to a bad joke. You cycle through a couple of options, and you give the punchline that makes the most sense. They'll start laughing, and they'll let you go. Like, I will give this game props for being actually designed around the movie. You know, a lot of these games that we encounter are just like shovelware that they slapped a title on and they just said, okay, good enough. And it's Do not you, really related to I anything. don't remember Jessica Rabbit doing the dip. Or yes, the dab. <laughs> the dab. Sorry, running the dab. Around yeah, like, Jessica Rabbit was in permanent dab. Yes. Either that or she was doing the vampire. I don't know. Yeah, that that's... <laughs> Her act is insane, apparently, in this. She just walks around. Once you finally get into the club, she just walks around back and forth, like, with her arms in a weird position until you drop a rose and she gives you information. Like, it's it's a lot of fetch questy stuff like that. And that that's annoying enough in a lot of point-and-click games when things are fixed and consistent. But when you just never know where the item that you desperately need to advance is going to pop up, that's unbelievably agonizing like i could see why you could sink so much time into it uh, I, I don't I see how you could sink so much time in it because like I, this this game drove me crazy i was longing for <laughs> et i was like bring back et you mentioned uh skyrim but two games before that morrowind was great because you didn't have quest markers you didn't have quest lines you had a linear journal that you had to page back through oh and be God. like all right how long ago did i last work on the quest i wanted to do who was that guy i was talking to is their name in this journal anywhere where am i where am i going you have to read street signs <laughs> it was great um but before i forget can the thumbnail for this week's just be jessica rabbit dabbing I don't think I'll the pixel the pixel art is so bad on almost everyone <laughs> except for I think Roger uh, Rabbit's okay. okay. For 1988, this is yeah, good look. pixel art. You gotta give that. You with could an tell asterisk. the cars were cars. I uh, I don't know. I've seen some like 
Oh, well, we so we can't talk about the Willow episode because it's lost. But I really like the Willow exist. episode, yeah. um, and like the. The, the Willow game I thought was really fun. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know. I just I just did not find this game to be fun. And maybe I'm taking taking it out on the pixel art, but I I just don't know. And Jessica Rabbit, you wait to see Jessica Rabbit, and then she's doing this weird dab thing. Um, I I, I don't Sorry. know. What, 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 she legitimately just full walks motion around. video and. Uh, 60 frames per second. At least, I, 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 I want a dragon's that. layer. Yeah, all of a sudden. At least yeah. not a pose. She was in a constant pose with one arm, uh, like her left arm. Left arm way out, and her right arm like legitimately doing a dab. I wonder if they were doing that to to hide her cleavage. Oh, I'm wondering <laughs> that one extra line would have been too titillating. I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Get it? Uh, might have taken two, three pixels even. Yeah. Apologies, listeners, for my hiccups have returned. That's all right. We'll try and really scare you. Roger Rabbit for NES. <laughs> that did it. That did it. Um, this also has one of my least favorite gaming conventions, which is uh, wandering into a pitch dark cave that uh, has a bunch of invisible pitfalls, and you need to like find some special magical so, item to advance. I, I always hated that. I actually didn't mind that. Like watching the walkthrough, I thought was it just seemed like maybe we were unlucky in our playthrough because like maybe we should have just reloaded it because uh, we found three things in a half an hour. Yeah, let me of, ask JR about that. Like, how how much of this is just, like, how many, like, just bum runs did you have, like, where you just showed up and nothing came up? Okay, you're, it's 35-year-old memories. Um, yes. But a fuck ton? Maybe, like, <laughs> fuck tons? Because yeah. I I had nothing else to do. This was my only game for the next six months. So I played it again and again and again, and I died and I died and I died. And then I kept searching around, and then I searched around. And I think eventually Nintendo Power came out with some hints. So I was like, okay, <laughs> I've got some vague sense. And then I remember getting into Toontown as being like, holy fucking Christ, I've I've achieved it. I've, I've gotten past, you need dynamite uh, to blow up the tunnel, and then you go through oh. the tunnel, and uh, it takes a whole lot of searching, and you got to find it all over the place, but you find it, and then you're in Toontown, and then you solve some more things, and then eventually you have to fight Judge Doom, and that's where all my memories are at. Okay. All right. So, all right. Yeah. Let's... How, how did you have to... How many times of dying playing Judge Doom did you have to do before you had to? Did you have to redo everything? All uh, the times. Yes, yes. You, you got this, like, ungodly long save code. And I remember, like, one time writing down, you know, an O instead of a zero. Yeah. And just, like, fucking my save code up and losing everything and being like, Ah, there is no God. And... <laughs> Uh, I, I remember building up my character and getting everything I needed to fight Judge Doom and just failing. Yeah. And failing. And failing. And then I remember being in, like, some bookstore and flipping through one of those, like, 900-page how-to-beat-Nintendo game things. I don't know oh, if you sure. remember those. And it was yeah. like, Roger Rabbit, how to defeat Judge Doom. Don't suck. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's Elden it, Ring rules. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's 
Judge Doom is the Dark Souls of NES games, okay? Because you have to go up there. You've got these, like, punching gloves. You've got these uh, portable holes. And you throw them all at him, and he just, like, laughs at them. He's just like, I'm Judge Doom, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have to hit him again and again and again. And you've got to keep – and if he, like, hits you once, you're dead. It's like – not even fair. It's like you it's, have to. It's hard to describe this fight because it's it's got a weird kind of like um, life bar where you each have like a meter that's moving mm-hmm. towards the middle, like the more yeah. damage you take, right? Yeah. And like, I wasn't totally clear what was happening. I just remember doing it an ungodly number of times, and then one time when I was like on the exact right combination of Mountain Dew and Doritos. <laughs> everything went my way and i just was like the matrix code flipped around me and i could see i wasn't even pushing the buttons the buttons just were being pushed and <laughs> judge doom went down and i get this like punk ass bitch congratulations you saved the day <laughs> the fuck i okay. mean you could yeah, at least count your lucky stars. It was spelled correctly. Like that's that's all yeah. you could hope for. At least at the end of Blues Brothers, this band that you literally know nothing about plays music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean that is absolutely that was the whole reward that you were getting for putting all these hours yeah. into games like this back in the day. It's just like a brief little paragraph, not mm-hmm. even an image. Well, you did your princess see, is in another castle. Uh, Roger Rabbit and Jessica like fall down like the and then it said mm-hmm. toontown is saved and remains in the hands of its rightful owners the tunes the end but you Their didn't listeners. get a fanfare of music because the music is so bad yes yeah they couldn't be bothered to write more than eight notes does it haunt your dreams <laughs> oh god yeah a uh, pretty unbelievably terrible game like i again i'm giving it some slight props just because it tried to do something a little i think the lazy quick option is just like all right side-scrolling hop and bop platformer but honestly i would have preferred a side-scrolling hop and bop platformer like it, it would have made more sense it would be more propulsive this decision I mean, to randomize your items just absolutely destroys any potential it we, made wayne's world look good it made wayne's world the game look we good. uh we played for about 30 minutes and then we pulled up a walkthrough that was an hour long and we watched that at two, t- two Sorry, times speed, two times yeah. speed and the amount of times that we literally just went, oh, come on. Yeah. What? How like, come he got, we searched, we searched everything in like two or three different buildings. He got literally nothing, even though the people in the building were telling us, search this building. Yeah. And they just, the first time they searched something, it's, boom, it's they a, got it. It's and I'm a game like, that's kind of impossible to speed run because you could either like beat this in like 20 minutes or it would take like 20 hours you know it, there's really no telling in the there's fact like that literally tool assisted speed runs out there where they like program the computer to say okay give me every item in the first three buildings and then yeah. it's like a six minute game yeah yeah exactly you could like blaze right through it if that's the yeah case, but. uh every building is identical there's like four buildings that aren't, and they aren't important. 
yeah, not or they don't seem to be very like important. Uh, like that. Yeah. And so it's like you're just going from generic hotel to generic hotel to generic hotel to generic hotel to, oh, this one's a shop? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you can't really keep it straight just looking at the overworld map because they went so monochromatic with it. And, uh, yeah, bizarre mess. Like, I, I was not expecting the game to be quite as bad as it wound up being. I think that might be a good time to transition to our final thoughts here. Did we have any final things we wanted to say about Roger Rabbit the game? Uh, just that there has been no Roger Rabbit the game since the 1991 Game Boy adaption of this yeah. game. And that's that's a crime. Roger yeah. Rabbit lends himself to the video game environment, especially with your modern day, perfectly. Disney, give me my open world Toontown where I play Eddie Valiant going around solving case after Toon case. Holy crud. Wouldn't that yeah. be exciting? Wouldn't that be awesome? There's a lot you could do with it. Like even when they made Toontown online, like Roger just was not a part of it. Like Mickey and Donald and all of them were, but Roger was just kind of left out. So it is weird that this property has just been sitting unused on the floor for 30 years now. Uh, I, I hope they find something to do with it in the future. I, I really do, because I think that that first movie is so special. It's so unique. It's such a masterful accomplishment. And then in direct proportion to that is the NES game that is so weird, so broken, and just does not work. Look, I watched Roger Rabbit get hit by a car so many times. Yeah. And I don't feel bad about that. No, I feel nothing <laughs> with this, Roger Rabbit. Well, let's move on to our final rankings. Each week we are saying if this is a good movie, good game, a bad movie, bad game, or something in between. Now, you guys probably have ascertained where I'm coming down on this one. <laughs> uh, it's a great movie, terrible game. Like, one of the widest disparities that we've seen so far, like I would argue. Um, how about you, J-Man? Uh, great movie, terrible I mean, it hasn't mm -hmm. unseated. It hasn't unseated Vertigo. As it <laughs> hasn't. Okay, I, I thought it might be. It might be down to. But a it's point close. Yeah. It's very close. Um, but uh, yeah, it's so bad. It's so 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 bad. Like, and like, there's so much color and beauty in Toontown and in Roger the Rabbit, and they just fail to bring it to the game like the fun aspects except for the weasel mini game i did like the weasel mini game oh yeah and justin where are you coming down on this uh good movie bad game there you go all right you always keep it nice and concise i appreciate that <laughs> also the hiccups are forced. i almost never do but uh, so I, i'm coming yes. down the film is literally a masterpiece for your listeners mm -hmm. who don't know uh when in medieval times when someone was trying to attain the rank of master jeweler, master uh, uh, builder, master mm. furniture maker, they would take one piece that they made and submit it to the guild and say, this shows that I have reached the rank of master. Roger Rabbit can absolutely be submitted to show that Zemeckis reached the position of a master filmmaker it is a masterpiece uh couldn't be made today i wish we got more roger rabbit it's it's a shame we don't have it um i really do think it would be a great video game this is not enjoyable mm -hmm. there's never been a single 
good Roger Rabbit video game. I booted it up before this podcast to try and play it just to get my memories flowing. And it, it's unplayable. Yeah. It is. It's the, the, in 2023, no human should play this game. And I looked online because occasionally you'll find like people who find old NES games. And as a hobby, they just go, I'm going to make a ha- ROM hack of this and improve it and fix all the problems. Nothing. No one yeah. has ever done anything to improve the Roger Rabbit game. And I don't know. Could you? Are, are there any like tweaks you could make to make this? I mean, I think you'd have to like completely remove rewrite randomization. it. Replace yeah. it with a different game. Re- remove all the randomness and have it be a genuine point of click where you go around and you talk to people and the people give you clues and hints and that's how you find the items. But that yeah. would be a completely different game. I think we need to do, instead of this, we're going to do a ROM hack of L.A. Noir. Yes. We're going to put Eddie and Roger in L.A. Noir and then just keep everything exactly that way. I, I want to see that exact game. Uh, now I really, really want I it. honestly hope somebody's done that already. I hope somebody, if they're not doing it, they absolutely should be, or else what is the point of everything? Uh, JR, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It was so fun chatting with you about this. I, I think we can safely say... You are the person who has played Roger Rabbit, the video game, more than anyone else in the world. I think you can claim that credit. If somebody else wants to step forward for the crown, uh, uh, come at me, bro. But I think you've got it. Um, So where else can uh, people find uh, uh, your various podcast uh, adventures? You can find me on 302010, found where all your favorite podcasts can be found. It's the show where we talk about everything that happened this week in pop culture 30 years ago, 20 years ago, and 10 years ago. I also host a Patreon exclusive for uh, listeners of 302010 called 80s in Depth, uh, in which the uh, really fantastic Steve joins us for frequent episodes. We have a lot of fun. We talk about a lot of crazy movies. Um, uh, we, we did, uh, what was the last one we did? I, I guess at the time uh, of this recording. We, we, the last one that you and I did together was the two Bond movies that both came right. out in 1983. Yes, the two eighty three by the dueling Bonds when uh, Roger Moore and Sean Connery were both Bonds. Oh my God, I year. remember those so much. Yeah, like, Octopussy and Never Say Never Again. Yeah, that's uh, a fun episode. Yeah, definitely check that one out. What a name. Yeah. Yeah. Never say never again. Like. Huge hit movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, never mind. <laughs> um, well, thank you again so much for being here. Everybody definitely check out 302010. It's one of my favorite shows ever. Um, and uh, it, it's a delight to have you. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. You can find us at Cinemarcade Podcast on Instagram and at Gmail. Uh, those are kind of really our only – oh, and you're, we're on YouTube now, so you can find us there as well if that's how you prefer to listen to your episodes. What are we doing next week? Oh, next week we are really mixing it up in a dramatic way, something that uh, – a movie I have not seen, so this is one of the rare ones of those, and a game I have not played, so this could really go anywhere. I have a prediction of which way it's going to go because we're playing – Balls of Fury. Yes, that's right. Balls of Fury? Balls of Fury, the 2007 Christopher Walken ping pong comedy, has a video game adaptation, and we're going to be talking about it. You Uh, haven't seen this movie? I have not seen Balls of Fury. I think this might be the first movie that none of us have seen. Have you not seen it? I've seen it. What? It's the inverse of normal. Normally, I'm the one who has it. 
Oh, all right. hasn't seen it. We are already uh, going into some some uncharted territory with this one. Now, here, granted, so. I saw this movie when I was like ten. Okay, so it's been a while. I imagine but... it holds up great. <laughs> it has all two mid two. I don't think it will, too. but we'll see. We will find out next week. So tune in next week and witness our balls of fury. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Good Apologies night. for all of my squeaks. Yeah, really, you could say the uh, the hiccups are the fourth host of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the fifth guest. Second guest. Whatever. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>